Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. I conducted an interview on Twitter Spaces the other day about the unfolding catastrophe happening with Airbnb properties across the U.S. I found the discussion both important and fascinating, and I really enjoyed the analyst I had it with, a new voice to the financial media space that I think you'll value getting introduced to. So I'm releasing the interview in its entirety here for you. A heads up, it's audio only, so you don't need to be glued to your screen while it plays. Maybe get a walk-in or get some chores done while you listen. Enjoy. All right. Hopefully folks can hear me here. Uh, welcome, folks. I'm Adam Taggart. I'm at Menlo Bear on Twitter. I'm also founder of the macro YouTube channel Wealthion. Uh, today here, I'm joined by Amy, who goes by the handle at Texas Runner DFW on Twitter. She's got a background in economics and journalism, and she covers the real estate market as closely as she's able to for her followers while she raises a family. Amy, thanks so much for joining me today. I understand that this is your first Twitter space? This is. Hopefully I'm doing this correct. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds good so far. Okay. Uh, well, look, thanks for taking time uh, out of your Sunday uh, to do this for me, Amy. And for folks listening, uh, I just pinged Amy a couple hours ago. Uh, we'd never talked before and uh, kind of caught her in the middle of a regular Sunday there. And she was uh, gracious enough to carve out a little bit of time to do this space with us. Um, so Amy, let's just, let's just jump right in here. I got a couple of prepared questions. Um, we'll talk for a bit and then maybe we'll take a couple of, uh, cute questions from the audience here. Um, you and I have been tweeting a lot of late about the deteriorating health of the U S real estate market. Um, recently though, you've been ringing a particularly loud bell about the vulnerability of the Airbnb part of the market, predicting what you're calling an Airbnb bust. Um, what about it has you so worried? Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I coined that term or not, but um, I did call it an Airbnb bust. I, I'm speaking about all short-term rental markets, not just necessarily Airbnb. I just think Airbnb is the biggest brand, so I kind of honed in on that okay, one. But like Verbo and some of the other rentals? Yeah, okay. it, it's all under the same short-term vacation rental mar umbrella. Um, so I think what started triggering the alarm bells for me was about a year ago, I just noticed an increase in just people, anecdotally people I know, people on Facebook, people I know in real life, picking up an extra vacation property here or there. Um, and it started to sort of snowball into a scenario where I was starting to see people that have zero background in property management um, very little background in real estate. And they're out there suddenly now owning maybe 10 or 12 of these properties. And some of their reviews were coming in one star. There was a lot of uh, PR problems for them. There were people in Facebook groups saying, you know, do not stay at this person's property. And meanwhile, Airbnb has them as a super host and their properties are being promoted but then people that I knew in real life were like, this experience was a nightmare. And so I was kind of starting to see these two things don't quite line up with um, reality here. And so I sort of dug into it and started looking more. And I, 
forget, I forget who posted it the other day, but somebody said, I think over 50% of short-term vacation rentals have been purchased in the last two years in the U.S., which is kind of an alarming number. Wow. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, it's sort of like a, there's a bit of an everybody's doing it now phenomenon going on here. Yes. And to the point where I think now there's not just a market for a short-term rental income. Now there's a market for coaches and, um, you know, influencers that want to sell how you can own your own little Airbnb empire. And then it started to remind me of an MLM, which incidentally, the people that are local here that first triggered me off to this, I looked into their background and they actually were um, at the top of an MLM company for a while before they rolled into this. And And I saw a lot of those. Sorry to interrupt, just for people that maybe not don't know what MLM means, you're talking about multi-level marketing scheme, correct? Yes. Sorry. Like, um, Mary Kay is like Amway, those, um, like some people call them pyramid scheme. Um, but it's where you start to make your money by selling the idea of the business rather than the business itself. Mm-hmm. And there started to be a whole bunch of these groups. I think there's a bigger, is it bigger, bigger pockets podcast is one yeah, of them. Um, there's like now this whole other empire around selling the concept that you can get rich buying short-term rental properties, even if you have no experience. And that to me just got kind of scary because I think, you know, you've got people, some of these loans are, they're not Freddie Fannie loans the way you would buy a you know home for you to be unoccupied. So people are taking personal loans. They're, People are syndicating, they're pooling money and grouping it together to purchase these properties. Um, I think that there's a lot of leverage in the system and it's all based on cash flow. Mm -hmm. So my concern then was, hey, it looks like we're going to have this post-COVID travel boom. People have been locked in, locked down for over a year. They're antsy. They want to take that vacation. Starting this spring, we started to see a flurry of vacationers, a lot of people wanting to go on these trips. I think a lot of these properties were getting booked. Yeah, and, and by the way, too, and, they had you know stimulus payments burning a hole in their pockets, too. Yes, stock market was at an all-time high. Stimulus payments were hitting, and people wanted to take that vacation. So I think probably a lot of these properties got booked at first and it seemed really lucrative and they were telling other people about how lucrative it was and sort of an unfortunate snowballing effect was you reached a point about midsummer this summer where there's suddenly too many properties in some regions it's just oversaturated and you're starting to see a slowdown in demand because the prices have gone up the cleaning fees the extra taxes and fees have gone up and people are also starting to realize, hey, my 401k is down 20%. Hey, I spent that stimulus money months ago. Maybe we're done with our vacationing. And I think as the summer wore on, that just continued to deteriorate. And I started to see it in just friends that I know. I started to see people advertising on Facebook. Hey, my Airbnb is vacant all September. Is anybody interested? We're going to offer this discount or that discount. And that's what made me actually go to the Airbnb Superhost group online and find those posts that I put in my tweet, which blew up the internet, which I never expected it to do that. Um, But yeah, that's kind of how 
how we got there. All right. Let's pause here for a minute because I, I want to uh, read first this tweet that you're talking about that uh, Zero Hedge ended up retweeting, as did other um, publishers, myself included. And uh, uh, you know, it seems like you saw a huge flurry of activity from that. But you were, you were uh, retweeting basically a, a tweet here from the Airbnb Superhost group. Um, it starts with this one question that one of them is asking, which is what's going on with Airbnb? No bookings at all. And then there's uh, another one under it here that says, has anyone seen a huge decrease in bookings over the last three to four months? We went from at least 50% occupancy to literally 0% the last two months. I'm just curious if this is something only going on in my property or if other people are seeing similar things. I'm in Palm Springs. Um, so we're beginning to see at least anecdotal evidence like this that bookings are drying up. And you mentioned that's, you know, potentially likely due to falling consumer demand. Um, and, you know, on the macro side of things, um, you know, I talk an awful lot about uh, how, you know, every week we're seeing more and more data that the economy is continuing to slow, that we are heading into recession. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate right now whether we're in one or not. There was the, the famous, you know, public discourse over, hey, what's the definition of a recession anyways? Um, Bloomberg Economics just came out earlier this week uh, with their latest model forecasting a 100% chance of recession in the next 12 months. So whether you think we're in one or not, clearly the trajectory is downwards. You know, big thing that Jerome Powell, head of the Fed, is trying to do is depress demand by all the interest rate hikes that he's making um, and the quantitative easing that he's begun. So, you know, we're in an environment where the economy would is cooling off and therefore demand for luxury travel um, or discretionary travel should be coming down anyways, right? So you've got that. The stimulus obviously is over. Um, as you said, people were, were feeling cabin fever from being locked down over COVID. That's in the past now too. So they've gotten their, you know, they've gone out, they've stretched their legs. Now they're getting back to real life. Um, there's another thing you mentioned, I just want to spend a moment on too, which is there's become a real affordability issue with Airbnb now. When it first came out, like when it first came out, it was kind of like the couch surfing solution, right? It was the way to kind of get a cheap listing uh, in an area rather than having to buy a night at a hotel, you know, with all the expenses that come along with it. Well, now what's happening is the script is basically flipped, which is the hotels are seeing um, falling demand uh, and they're bringing their prices down as a result. And Airbnb, the prices had been pushed up by lots of consumers traveling. And you mentioned cleaning fees. Because of inflation, um, the, the cleaning crews are, are charging an awful lot more. Um, it just costs more to, to, to run these Airbnbs. The, the mortgage debt to buy them now costs more. Um, and so now the price of the Airbnb is no longer competitive versus hotels. And in a lot of cases, it's more expensive. <laughs> and on top of that, a lot of these Airbnb hosts are asking you, yes, I'm going to ask you to pay this exorbitant cleaning fee, but I'm also going to ask you if you can like, you know, put everything in the dishwasher before you go, if you can wash the sheets, you know, some of you have said like, I need you to mow the lawn. <laughs> um, so people are just like, why would I stay in an Airbnb when I can go to a hotel when it's cheaper and I don't have any of these other hassles? So there's all of a sudden kind of like this, this affordability crisis going on there. So I'll take a pause here, but is there anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, and I think with with the affordability aspect of it, um, 
I do think that that was one of the major advantages of Airbnb in the early years. And with that gone, I think they kind of need to have another competitive advantage. And I was just um, talking to a different reporter last week who asked me kind of like, is this just Airbnb model no good or can people still succeed with it? And my answer is people can still succeed with Airbnb, but you need to have a competitive advantage to your property. It needs to be unique in some way. It needs to be exceptionally well run. And you can no longer just buy, you know, Joe's house in suburbia and go buy some decor at Marshall's and expect that you're just going to be able to command top dollar. You've got to have a really unique location or something really funky and interesting about your property that's going to draw people to say, hey, if this is the same price as a hotel or more, I'm, it's going to be worth it because I'm getting some value that's extra. That's a great point. And I actually want to kind of at the end of this discussion, kind of ask you to opine a little bit further about the Airbnb model. Let's let's put a pin in that just for a second. Um, okay. Because I want to get into the cash flow part of it, the negative cash flow. Before I do, I just want to make one last point, which is, you know, you were sort of saying that we saw this huge influx of people becoming Airbnb hosts. Um, I think you said something like 50% of the the listings have been purchased in the past two years, something like that, if I got that stat right. Yeah, it was a little over in the U.S. It might have even been over 60. It was at least over 50. It's pretty okay. high. So super high. Um, there's another dynamic going on in parallel, which is the baby boomers, as they have been. So for years, people expected that there was going to be uh, kind of a, a depressing factor on home prices as the baby boomers got to the age where their kids are out of the house, they're now retiring and they're going to downsize, right? They're going to downsize to a more modest um, sized residence. Um, and what they've found is a lot of them, yes, they, they, they moved and downsized to a smaller residence, but they actually didn't sell their older residence. <laughs> they, um, you know, it, it had been appreciating so much every year that they just sort of held on to it like, assuming it's sort of like a stock. I'm just going to keep it in part of my investment portfolio because it goes up by X percent every year. And so they would rent that out, right? Either long-term rents um, or they'd, they'd make it an Airbnb property or Verbo or whatever. Um, and so I just want folks to realize that it's not just the branded Airbnbs and Verbos that are out there. It's also just sort of a, a material part of the U.S. housing stock has become rental property that that become incremental rental property that sort of folks weren't prepared for. Um, and the reason why all this is important is now we get to the cash flow part, right? So you said, Amy, that, uh, you know, a lot of these people are, are relatively recent buyers. Uh, some percentage of them took out um, probably, uh, you know, uh, irresponsible or near irresponsible type loans uh, if they were you know getting pulled in as part of these MLM uh, coaching, you know, services and whatnot. Um, and so, you know, that all works fine as long as the, the fees are going up and vacancy rates are good. Um, but once people can't afford the fees and the vacancy rates start plummeting, like we're seeing now, um, then all of a sudden this thing becomes an albatross around their neck, right? And a lot of the people who really had to borrow to get in the space, they don't have a lot of uh, cushion to absorb too many months of negative cash flow before they just have to get out, right? And so I'm going to, talk with you in a little bit about sort of the state of the general real estate market, but 
what's important to know about these Airbnb hosts, especially the, the Johnny come latelys, and especially the ones that are levered, is that these are really weak hands in the real estate market, right? Um, if, if housing prices start softening, uh, if it's your house, um, you're going to be reluctant to sell and you're going to do everything possible to stay in your house for as long as you can afford to. But if this is an investment property, especially one that you got into with too much leverage, especially pretty recently to try out, hey, it's just something I might want to, you know, a way I might be able to make some extra money. You're going to be like on a first in, first out basis. Like, whoa, this thing isn't what I thought it was. I'm getting out of here. Just sell the house. Right. So it's going to be a depressing factor as the housing market starts weakening. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, there's a lot of people sitting on 3% mortgages. They're just not going to sell. So there's not going to be an inventory. So the housing market isn't going to go down. You know, I would posit to say, no, you know, a lot of these investors, especially the, the small retail ones like we're talking about, they're going to be like the first ones out. And they're going to be dragging all home prices down with them because real estate is priced at the margin. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think some of the way that some of these loans are structured, too. I mean, if they took a personal loan or they leveraged against their own home that they live in, um, these are not 3% rate loans. Some of these loans could be, you know, 7 8%. If they're personal loans that are off the books, they cannot be... Um, sold through Freddie Fannie, some of these loans are going to be floating rate loans. So these interest rate rises are really going to put these people oh, in a God, pinch squeezing them, if, yeah. if they aren't cash flowing. And now suddenly they are owing more on their debt. Um, that's going to be a real problem. And yeah, I think that probably there, from what I'm seeing, there's going to be two instincts. Instinct number one is going to be like, this was a terrible idea. I need to sell this property right away. Instinct number two is for the person who's like, eh, maybe I can still make this work. I'm going to turn it into a long-term rental. So I'm also hearing from people saying, yeah, I pulled my vacation rental and I'm trying to now rent it out to a family, like a long-term single family rental, which in my opinion is great for the housing market. My goal is affordable housing for people that want to live in a house. So if they want to take a short-term rental and turn it into long-term rental, that's totally fine. But what you're going to see then is that's going to start to put downward pressure on home prices. rental prices. Well, rental prices and home prices because theoretically- And home prices. Yeah, theoretically. So it's, it, in other words, it's kind of great for renters, right? Excess inventory, all competing for renters. It's going to bring the price of rents down. So long-suffering renters are hopefully going to get a break here. But if you're a homeowner, you know, homes are- they're basically supposed to be priced on the rents that you could get for that home, right? Or priced on what, what incomes in that area can afford. Um, it's, it's theoretically supposed to be a discounted cash flow valuation. So rents come down, theoretically, home prices should come down too. Yeah, which is interesting because, I mean, in Dal I mean, Dallas Fort Worth, I would say right now there is a large gap between um, like what it would cost to service a mortgage on a home, assuming a eight percent or seven percent or eight percent rate with 20 percent down versus renting a similar property there's already a pretty sizable gap between those two it is significantly cheaper to rent so i can't imagine anybody buying right now would be able to cash flow a property yeah that's really interesting that's really interesting i don't know if every region i don't know if every region is like that but i know that our region it, because we have really high property taxes um i know our region is like that 
Okay. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, that that's, that's, you're hearing sort of plan A or plan B. Plan A is I'm just getting out and selling it. Don't care what the price is. I just got to protect whatever I can keep. And then the second is I'm going to try to make this work as a long-term rental. Um, I guess sort of TBD, how successful that that cohort will be at, at being able to do it at a way that cash flows enough for them to want to continue doing it. Yeah, because there's going to be a spiral, uh, a downward spiral, I think, in particular regions where they're very short-term rental heavy. Um, I think you're starting to see it happen in the Phoenix market. There's certain markets in California as well. Um, there's so many short-term rentals that you're going to start to see people trying to bail on them, but you're also going to run into a problem where no one's going to want to buy them because they don't want to live in a hotel neighborhood. Right. And they don't want to be the person that's living around 15 Airbnbs on their Right, a bunch of transients, a bunch of, you know, we hear all those horror stories about people who live next door to an Airbnb that's having all these, you know, unsanctioned parties and stuff like that. Yes. And worse, crime. I mean, there's really bad stories out there for some of these places. But, um, yeah, I think in general, it probably brings down the value of properties in a neighborhood. And certainly, I think H several HOAs ban them. Um, but there are certain regions where there are zero restrictions and some of those places have really gone downhill. I've gotten a lot of DMS from people who have said, um, it's turned our market into a complete mess. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny when you use the term Airbnb bust, there's probably. Um, let's talk real quickly about this tweet that you retweeted earlier today from a guy named Mark Jenny. Um, says, comment from a realtor we talked to in Arizona this week. Quote, I've never seen this many vacation rentals come on the market for sale. Every day, someone is asking us to list their Airbnb for sale. So it sounds like those folks that are in the category of, I'm just pulling the ripcord, I want to get out of here. Sounds like that's already underway. Yeah. And I think Phoenix, I want to say it was like eight months ago. Um, I kind of did a demographic search on a bunch of different ho local housing markets, and I targeted Phoenix and Boise as two that I thought were very vulnerable to severe housing corrections, and I based it on investor activity. At the time, I hadn't broken down how much of the investor activity was for long-term rental versus short-term rental versus a flip. But um, you're already seeing, especially in the Phoenix market, I mean, home prices are collapsing there. Um, rental inventory is skyrocketing there. And this has only been, I mean, we're still in the early innings of these interest rate rises. So if this is just the start, <laughs> I mean, those markets, I mean, Phoenix has always been a boom bust market, but I mean, it boomed pretty hard and I'm concerned that the bust end could be pretty ugly on, on this one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a big reason why you and I have been sort of bringing the bell in general about uh, the condition of the real estate markets. But the, you, you touch on something really important here that is sort of different this time with the real estate market, which is um, there's such a m much larger investor ownership concentration in the single family home market this time around, way more than ever before. Um, I don't know what it is for those specific markets, but I've heard in general that the percentage is something like a quarter to 30% of all single family homes that are sold right now are going to an investor. They're not all small, you know, mom and pops that might be buying one or two. Um, 
there is an increasing amount of, you know, hedge funds uh, or big companies in there. Um, you know, Zillow is a, a, a relatively recent famous example um, that are buying, you know, hundreds, thousands of homes in a particular geography. And one, they've been helping drive prices up because they're all cash buyers. They've got really deep pockets. Um, one of the things that I think is really important to keep in mind, it's a point I made earlier, is these guys don't live in the house. To them, this is just an investment transaction. And if the market gets to a point where they're realizing, ah, you know what, like our, these numbers aren't penciling out for us anymore. We've decided we don't want to be in these markets anymore. They can like basically flood a market with inventory if they just decide all at once that they're going to cut their losses and run and dump a bunch of inventory. And, you know, yes, they're going to try not to do that if they can. But we've already seen an example with Zillow, where Zillow realized that they overpaid for a bunch of properties and they unloaded them all at once. Now, fortunately, they were able to sell them to another big institutional buyer. So they didn't all hit the market at the same time. Um, you just had one buyer kind of take over the portfolio. But if, if this is happening in the middle of a recession, when companies are fighting for their lives, it very well may not be that orderly. And, uh, you know, I, I, I personally, you know, I'm, I'm quite concerned that that could be another risk factor here if we get a bad housing market correction that could make it even worse. Yes. And that is something that I um, flagged as an area of concern in Dallas in 2021 as well. And the actual number for Dallas County was 43% of homes purchased in 2021 were by investors. That's bananas. And oh 41%, over huh? <laughs> 43%. And I think it's 46 in Tarrant County, which is our neighboring neighboring Dallas County um, is Tarrant County. Um, and that's just two regions of Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, I think the number today is around 20% for 2022. So your number was correct for current investor purchases. But in 2021, it was over 40%. And I think part of that is why you're seeing now people have vaguely mentioned this sometimes on social media, like, why are so many homes for sale ones that people bought in the last two years? Well, that's why, because an investor bought it and they either flipped it or they rented it out and they took the appreciation money and now they're done. So they have no attachment to the property. They don't care to own it long-term if it's not going to make them money. And they're just, it's purely a business deal for them. Yeah. And so one thing I want to underscore here is I've been hearing this a lot on Twitter is people say, Hey, you know, look, a lot of people have 3% mortgages. They're not going to really worry about what happens in the real estate market here because they don't have to sell. Right. So they're just going to sit on their properties and inventory is going to be tight and the market's not really going to correct that much. And I think those people are really, forgetting that real estate is priced at the margin, which means you got a, you got a neighborhood of 10 homes. If only one of those homes sells, whatever that home sells for sets the new comp for that neighborhood, right? So, you know, there are always going to be homes that need to, to sell for whatever reason, you know, somebody gets divorced, they die, they lose their job, they can't afford their mortgage anymore, they have to move for work, whatever. So you're always going to have some inventory that's selling. But you add into the mix what we're talking about here, which are these investors who, again, they don't live in the house. <laughs> they don't have a reason like the other people in the neighborhood do to say, hey, let's not bring our prices down because we all want to keep our home values nice and flush. Um, you get one of these guys who just decides he's out. You know, he can reset the price for everybody. 
Yeah. And, and I think that's a big, that's, that's a very valid point. Um, I also try to keep hammering home, you know, it's priced at the margins and you've seen, I've seen that in our region, you know, there's a lot of homes sitting on the market making these tiny price cuts, but the one that sold is the one that cut, you know, 10%. So that one is the new comp. And unfortunately, I think part of what happened this summer that slowed the process down a little bit was people were just pulling their houses off the market and listing them for rent. So you weren't getting a comp. Right, right. The, 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 the home all. sellers try to go on strike, right? They're just like, okay, nobody, nobody yes. sell, nobody lower their homes. Yeah, okay, maybe we'll take it off, the listing off. Maybe we'll rent it for a bit. But, and then you, I'm giving the torch back to you here. <laughs> but eventually somebody breaks from the herd, right? But eventually somebody has to sell. And that's, I mean, it's always, and it's usually a distress situation, um, divorce, death, like you said, or just financial distress from, for any other reason, they lost their job. Um, and that I think is where we're going to start to see those homes as they slowly, and it is moving really slowly because housing is so slow, but as those homes slowly begin to sell, the new comps are going to be reset lower and the market's kind of going to sort of snowball down, but it still kind of feels like this is the early stages of this correction. Oh God, yeah, I agree. And we've got many major, very respected um, housing analysts calling for, you know, 10, 10% declines next year, maybe 20% if we get a recession, which supposedly we now have 100% chance of having, <laughs> according to a couple people. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of scary because honestly, I don't think we've ever in the history of our country had respected housing analysts forecasting a 20% drop. Right. Nobody did in 2008 because nobody had ever seen the housing market. Right. Drop. Nobody thought it could happen. And we had all the assurances from Bernanke and, and the big housing market analysts back then. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, it's never been sort of telegraphed like this. And, of course, one of the reasons why it hasn't is general people – our, our fearless leaders don't like to because they feel like if they tell people they think there's a chance of recession, people will rein in their spending and then increase the odds of the recession actually happening. <laughs> but but now I think people, right. I just think it's so inevitable now that, that people can't ignore it. Right. One other thing that's that's really important note here too, um, going back to the boomers, is you know a lot of the boomers that are sitting on those three percent mortgages, um, they have a lot of home equity locked up in there, right? And their plan has been, hey, you know, eventually at some point, you know, I'll, I'll sell that home or I'll tap that equity and that's going to fund my retirement. And if your strategy is, okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to kind of wait this out and see if, if we can all not sell and just ride it through this thing. If you start seeing the comps in your neighborhood go down by 20%, 30%, lower than that potentially, you're doing the math in your head and saying, oh my God, I'm losing all of my home equity. So those people, are, again, are going to be relatively quick to move because they have a first mover advantage. Yeah, much better to lose, you know, cut my price by 10% and get out with, you know, still a good chunk of my home equity than ride this thing down and maybe not have any, you know, by the time I really need it. Yeah. And honestly, I'm already seeing that. Um, it was some of my parents. My parents are the boomer generation. I, I consider myself an elder millennial. So... Uh, a geriatric millennial, uh, I think is what they call those. A, a geriatric millennial. Yes, I'm probably one of the oldest of the millennial group. Um, so my parents, their friends are all in that 
boomer demographic. And I'm actually starting to see what I'm seeing happen now is a lot of them are starting to sell their primary home, which is large and more expensive. And they're either downsizing. And in the majority of cases, these homes are paid off completely or they owe very yeah. little on it. Um, in the majority of cases, they're either downsizing to a small property in a cheap tax um, property tax state, or some of them are selling their primary home and simply moving into a beach house they already own somewhere else yeah. or a condo they own it on the ocean. And so that's putting a piece of inventory on the market and it's not taking one off. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah, no, you're right. Um, and of course, you know, that, that is the smart thing to do at the individual level, right? Yes. It's downside. Let's reduce our cost footprint. Our, you know, the vast majority of our equity is in that big primary home that we probably don't have a mortgage left on or whatever. Like, let's lock that in now. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, as the herd begins to realize that the race is on, right. To, to lock in whatever equity you've gained over the years, again, you know, this, this becomes a wave of selling, right? It becomes a wave of inventory that starts flooding the market. Well, if you're going to sell, shoot, I'm going to sell too, because I don't want to be the guy who's left holding the bag, you know, a year from now who didn't sell when the time is right, right? Um, all right, well, look, uh, two questions for you about this, and then we'll get to just general real estate comments. And hey, for folks listening, I think there's a way in, uh, in Twitter spaces to like give a little high five or wave or something like that, but... If there is, and you know how to do it, do it if, if, if you're enjoying this. Um, these things are always a little bit hard to, to know if folks are uh, you know, having a good time or not because there's no chat feature here. But if you guys are able to do that, that'd be great. Oh, I see a couple of high fives. Great. Thanks, guys. I saw somebody do one earlier. I don't remember what it was. Okay. Some kind of emoji. All right. Now there's a thumbs up. There's a heart. Okay. That's all good. <laughs> um, all right. So I think you already intimated this, but like, how worried are you about how bad this could get? And, and, and specifically too, like what will you be monitoring to track how things are going here? I know that you have access because you have a, a, a family member who's, who's works in the real estate industry. Um, what will you be watching most closely to sort of track while this unfolds? Um, I think probably the, the biggest thing that, I mean, the most important thing to keep an eye on is how fast inventory is growing. Um, but I think also a main driver of this is going to be a recession. And if we have one, which we're supposed to, and how bad it is, um, I think that's going to, then you're going to start to see that rush to the exits where people are looking to lock down whatever cash they can get um, and just kind of hunker down. So if we see worsening economic indicators that are indicating the recession is here, it, it, I mean, I know they changed the definition, but even with the change definition, if it starts to look like, while well, we're really running into recession, unemployment is, is climbing, um, and especially if we still have this entrenched inflation on top of climbing unemployment, um, that's going to be kind of a scenario. Worst of everything, a, yeah. Worst of everything. Yeah, so I, I'd probably be keeping an eye on you know, inventory, because you see it already in certain markets like Phoenix, um, both rental and for sale inventory is rapidly rising in certain regions. And those are the regions where we're also seeing the fastest price corrections. So, yeah, I mean, on one hand, I'm a little bit scared just because there are so many people forecasting a downturn and that's never happened. And I generally think that, like, like you said, the mainstream 
sort of media people tend to downplay things because they don't want to scare the public. So if they're already saying, hey, we think there's going to be, you know, a 10, 15 percent correction, like, yikes, um, what does that really mean? But on the other hand, there are people with cash out there. There's people that DM me every single day and say, hey, you know, I, I didn't want to participate in the bidding wars. I've sat out this market for two years. I really want to own a home. You know, I just need prices to come down to something reasonable. And that number is different for every single person. So I think a best case scenario, in my opinion, is prices start to come down and you start to slowly have buyers trickle back in as it reaches whatever their own affordability threshold is. And that will sort of start setting a floor and cushioning some of these markets from just collapsing. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, the question is, and it's so multifactorial, but you, know, you talked about kind of the role recession could play there. You know, the, the, the big boogeyman in all of this is layoffs, right? Right. Right now we're worried about, or we're talking about people being worried about, you know, not making their investment property cash flow or, you know, eroding their home equity. Um, but if you add in the specter of people fearing for their income um, or losing their income, uh, you know, that, 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 that's a whole other sense of kind of panic that goes into this market of, hey, you know, I got to get what I can get while there's still something to get here. Yeah. And I think that will also keep buyers sidelined. You know, if, if people are wanting to buy a home and they're starting to see layoffs at their company, they might say, hey, wow, you know, I have great income. I've had this down payment saved up for three years, just waiting on the sidelines. But I'm afraid to buy now because what if I lose my job or my spouse loses my job? I won't be able to service the debt. Right. So it, it sounds like, you know, if, if you're one of those people who is in that position, um, patience really is your greatest asset right now, right? Just, just, just keep yes. nurturing that dry powder, keep adding to it if you can, keep doing whatever you can to minimize your vulnerability to losing your income stream. Um, sort of see how this is going to play out. Now, nobody can pick the exact bottom, but you can kind of get a sense for like, hey, if the Fed is, is still hiking rates, <laughs> And then if, if, if we do indeed enter, enter a recession and, they're, and layoffs start, as long as the layoffs are continuing to happen at volume, you can kind of tell yourself, all right, we're not, we're not over yet if those two things are still going on, <laughs> right? If the cost of debts continue right. to go up and people are losing their jobs. You know, once maybe both of those are over, you know, then you can say to yourself, okay, this might not be the exact bottom, but you know, the, the worst of the things that are going to influence home prices are now behind us. You know, maybe I can start actively looking now. Um, and, and of course, to your point, the house has to be a good value based upon your financials, no matter what's happening in the macro environment. But once that dust has started to settle that we just talked about, then you start looking at the targets that you can afford. And, and maybe that's when you create your shopping list. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, I did say I'd ask you about your thoughts on the Airbnb model. Um, and you, you, you already sort of partially answered this by saying, hey, you got to become really differentiated. So do, do you think, again, once the dust settles and, and let's say the real estate market reprices to something that's more sane and sustainable, will we see the return of, of the whole short-term rental market uh, back to its old glory? Or do you think it'll be something uh, 
that'll be a little bit more selective going forward? I think it will be more selective. I don't know that we're ever going to have, I hope we don't have this mass um, amount of short-term rentals like we've had this summer. I really think this was like a one-time post-COVID travel boom demand that is going to be pretty hard to replicate in the future. So I, I would love it if it was just, you know, some really cool properties um, there's always going to be bigger groups that want that vacation house. They don't want to have a little hotel room. I think it'd be great if some regions could put some restrictions on maybe the amount of short-term rentals or just in some residential neighborhoods, maybe even ban them um, if local homeowners are, are having problems. Um, I think, it, you know, that's going to probably be something by each municipality. Like they need to make their own regulations and rules. And some places already are. Um, but no, I don't think the Airbnb model just dies completely. Um, but I do think we're probably going to see a slowdown in this whole frenzy of pitching this get, get rich quick idea by owning a bunch of short-term rental properties. Okay. Yeah. And I, I honestly can't see anything to, uh, to challenge that at this point. So anyways, presumably Amy, we'll have you back on, you know, between now and then to give your color commentary if you see trends changing or whatnot, but, but that logic stands pretty sound to me. Um, all right, real quick. I just want to talk about the general housing market. And then if you've got time, take a few questions from listeners. Um, sure. So I, I just want to read a couple of uh, recent headlines. These are all headlines from the past couple of days about the general real estate market. Uh, this one's from the New York post home asking prices tumble at record pace as mortgage rates surge. Redfin has U.S. saw record drop in home sales in September. Yahoo Finance, buckle in for a brutal freefall in home prices uh, because the U.S. housing market is in a massive bubble, experts say. Uh, and then today on Zero Hedge, a record number of real estate agents will quit due to the economy, Realtor predicts. As I said at the opening, you monitor the real estate market pretty closely. Um, are headlines like these alarmist or are they just reflecting reality? Honestly, I mean, they are reflecting reality, but you have to remember how alarmist things really were on the way up. So it's pretty crazy to imagine that you're going to have this parabolic rise in two short years and not have some sort of equally bumpy ride on the way down. Um, yeah, these are rapid declines in some regions, but at the same time, we're not even back to, you know, 2021 prices yet. Right, right. started up, but, but and, I mean, just, just in 2021 alone, home prices appreciated by 20%. Right, <laughs> and that was with a 3% interest rate. So in my opinion... Homes were already overpriced by early 2022 with a three, assuming a 3% mortgage rate. Yeah. And sorry to interrupt too. So, I mean, in my opinion, because I've been following the housing market for a while, I think the housing market was grossly overvalued prior to all the stimulus that then created the massive bubble we're just talking about here over the past year. <laughs> I could be right or wrong, but you could make, you could have made a pretty good argument that housing nationwide was, was still overvalued before the craziness of the past two years. You know, I have, I I have challenged a couple people on that topic 
just in terms of Dallas Fort Worth, I do not think that our housing market was overpriced in say 2018. Um, other people have challenged me on this. I actually think we were pretty much approaching fair value uh, right before the whole COVID stimulus and all of that boom. Um, I think our region was actually underpriced for several years that many other regions in the country were. Right. They were already right. in California, and, obviously. And that, totally overpriced. Yeah, and I'm in Northern California, so I've, I've had that in my face for right. a long time. And, and, and what you're saying, and I'm not contending it at all, because I think that's why Dallas has seen such an explosion in growth and in building over the past couple of years because it was an underpriced market beforehand. Yes, I, I do think it was. And I do think some of the remote work and some of the, um, our, our economy is really growing here. I think there are valid reasons to say that the floor of our pricing has permanently moved up from, you know, those 2018 levels, but that does not mean that it's, you know, the 2022 values are fair because we rapidly swung from underpriced to severely overpriced in about a two and a half year period. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I'm sure that's true for Dallas Fort Worth. The only point I wanted to make is sort of nationwide people are like, yeah, well, things got crazy with the, the stimulus uh, that that resulted in the 20% year over year increase and stuff like that. It, it, sort of with the, with the assumption that, Hey, if we just remove what happened over the past two years, like if we just adjust down, by what we appreciated over the past two years, housing will be fairly, fairly valued. And my point is, is at least for a number of markets in the country, you can make a pretty good argument that they were overvalued still um, coming into 2020, maybe not Dallas-Fort Worth, but certainly a number of others. Absolutely. Many others. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, since you are in Dallas-Fort Worth though, and that's the market you, you, look at most closely. And, and I guess you could say it's, it's maybe one of the healthier markets. I hate to use that word, but it is because it was coming off of a, a, a lower valued, you know, maybe undervalued um, state in the recent past. Um, what are you seeing now? Um, you know, again, not just the short term rentals, but just the overall housing market. Um, is that cooling pretty quickly there? It is cooling pretty quickly. Um, starting around late June, um, houses are now sitting on the market for 30, 60 days. Um, builders, depending, the smaller builders are starting to slash prices, especially in the exurbs where you had a lot of remote people kind of buying way out there and maybe they got called back to work. Maybe they just realized, Hey, I don't want to live in the middle of nowhere. Um, the exurbs are struggling. The core areas, um, and the regular suburbs are holding up a little better, but prices are coming down. I uh, we're probably about almost 10% down from the May, 2022 peak in many regions of Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, but prices are still really high for our taxes. And for when you compare it to the owner occupied rents, I mean, it is still significantly cheaper to rent. So, I'm just not seeing where we're going to be getting these buyers, especially if a lot of our, a lot of the investors are kind of sidelined now. And a lot of our real people buyers were people coming from New York or Seattle or California. And if their markets are starting to correct now and they're having trouble selling their homes, they're not going to be coming here either. Right. Right. Yep. Okay. And I'm curious, the softening that you just described, 
how conceivable was that in May of this year? Like, was that something anybody in the real estate market was even talking about? Or has this just like hit them across the side of the head like a two by four, just something they were not expecting? Most people that I've spoken to said it. Uh, I, I remember talking to a real estate agent on Mother's Day weekend and she said it was like the lights just got shut off. Like the open houses went from bidding wars, which was people with expiring 3% rate locks. Um kind of like that last gasp frenzy. It would be what I call our early spring market. And then as soon as those rates hit over five, everything just stopped. I mean, showings were way down, offers were way down. And then when we hit that over 6% rate in June, it was dead. I mean, only the best houses were selling. There's no more multiple offers. There's no more most things, I think the average right now they said are selling 96 or 97% below list. So for the most part, now everybody's bidding under list. Um, probably t- 20 to 30%, depending on the town of the homes that are sitting, have price cuts now. Um, and it was pretty abrupt because we had a lot of agents here sticking to that narrative of, well, Dallas didn't really correct very much during 2008. Right. But Dallas didn't really go up very much during 2005 to 2007 either. <laughs> All right. So sort of what you're saying earlier is, hey, you know, it, it rose very sharply. Not surprising that the decline might be equally as sharp. Um, all right. Well, look, um, uh, I want to get to Q&A real quick before I do. Um, just give the 60 second version of, of your background. Um, so, you know, you live in Texas, you follow the Dallas-Fort Worth market, but you've got a background in economics and in journalism, correct? Yes. Yes. I actually, I am not um, native to Dallas. I grew up in the Chicago area, but um, so that's why I don't have a, an accent. Although I do not live in a suburb where it's very cowboy. <laughs> the, the joke is you have to live in Fort Worth to find the real Texan cowboys. Um, Dallas is a little bit more of kind of a blend. It's very, most of the people here are transplants. Um, Been watered down from exiles from my state. Yeah, a lot of them from California. <laughs> the California refugees, we call them. Um, but yeah, my background is in journalism. Um, I studied, I, my degree is in economics and I did some graduate coursework in journalism, um, was on the path to attend Medill um, for a master's and life got in the way. I got married, had a baby and started really questioning that uh, $100,000 student loan I would need for that uh, graduate degree. <laughs> so um, yeah, and then I've been a stay-at-home mom for the last nine years. So I've done some freelance writing, but not a ton. And I did a little bit of work in broadcast journalism back right when I graduated college, but it wasn't a positive experience. So kind of transitioned out of that quickly. All right. Well, I I do want to say as somebody who sort of discovered you on Twitter, um, I have (laughs) really enjoyed um, and valued the the insights that you share on your Twitter feed. And folks watching, if you don't already follow Amy, you should. Her Twitter handle is at Texas Runner. DFW, you should go follow her now. Um, all right, so Amy, if, if you got some time, um, I'd love to ask folks mm-hmm. to raise their hands and we'll take a question or two. Okay. 
All right, folks, if you'd like to ask a question, um, if you know how to use Twitter spaces, just uh, request to be a speaker. And uh, if I can figure this out, I will bring you in. All right, I see Austin here. Austin, I'm going to try to bring you in. And Amy, it usually takes him about five seconds or so for Twitter to activate him. Okay. All right, Austin, we see you. Hey, so um, one thing I noticed that you said that um, um, as like prices decline, you think that people are going to start jumping into the market because they just want a decent deal. Um, as one of those people, one thing I'm just trying to work through for myself is a big factor in that isn't necessarily just the price, but also the financing cost. There's people you talk to. Do you get the sense that people believe mortgage rates are going back down to a more normal level? Or do people believe that this is a new normal? That's a great question. Um, a lot of the people that I talk to just continually refer back to historical interest rate charts, which show that rates historically trend down. Um, whether or not this is a new normal, you know, that's kind of up for debate. But traditionally, rates trend down. And my opinion would be based on history. What will probably happen is there will be some sort of a recession, whether it's mild or deep. And we'll start reverting back to rate cuts and the whole QE stimulus cycle. Um, you know, from a macroeconomic standpoint, there's discussion of how many more of those cycles we can get away with as a country before it, hyperinflation or whatever. There's, there's all sorts of possibilities there that I'm not um, fully able to address. But traditionally, I do think that rates after these hikes will come down. I don't know how soon they'll come down. And I certainly would not buy a house that you're uncomfortable with the mortgage on right now thinking, hey, I'm just going to be able to refinance this later. Because you don't know when later will be. I, I entirely second her last point there, which is um, whenever you do buy at whatever interest rate, it should be one that you could sustainably afford, um, even if rates don't come down. Um, you know, I talked to so for those of you that don't know me, I run a macro channel on YouTube. Um, I interview people every day. I do five to six videos a week. Uh, so I talk to a lot of experts in the markets, in the economy, and um, they have different opinions. But if I could sort of blend the consensus together, um, I think they think that uh, the Fed will largely keep hiking until something breaks uh, that it then has to fix. Um, meaning rate hikes will probably continue up until some point where the Fed changes policy. As Amy said, um, the likelihood is at that point, um, it will probably go back to, to, to rate cuts at some point. Um, I, and I think you have to keep in mind too, that, that right now the Fed is hiking hard to kill inflation. So, you know, last time we did this, you can use as an analog, you know, Volcker brought rates to crazy levels. But he didn't keep them there forever. You know, once the back was broken on inflation, they came way back down again. In fact, we had 40 years of, of interest rates, you know, trending down. Um, I think most of the people I talk to are of the mindset that the zero to near zero interest rate policy of the Fed is probably probably is a new average floor uh, forward. They expect them to come down level that it's in right now um don't expect it to go back as low as it was before um 
perhaps that means the days of 3% mortgage rates might be over. Um, but I think they, they would say in general, yeah, once the inflation monster is more or less slain, uh, the Fed will, for a whole bunch of reasons, probably, you know, go back to at least bringing rates down to a, a more manageable level for the overall economy. Um, and if something's really broken in there for a period of time, may have to go back to the type of stimulus that we we saw over the past couple of years. Um, but but most important message is, is <laughs> uh, and look, I, I, I think if you if, if prices come down to where you can buy them affordably at current interest rates, I think if you do do that, uh, odds are pretty good that as the Fed starts taking the actions that I talked about, that you'll be able to refinance at more attractive rates, but you should not make your purchase decision predicated on that. Yeah, especially because um, I think it was Lance uh, Lambert who brought this up earlier is you cannot easily refinance and you may not even be able to at all if you have negative equity. So that's another important thing to keep <laughs> in mind. Point, yeah. um, so you may find yourself in a situation where rates do start coming down, but you're a little bit underwater on that property. You're not refinancing. It, it, it's a great caution to, to flag for folks. Um, all right, Austin, thanks so much for the question. Um, Andrew, we're going to bring you in. Hi. Um, I'm not sure, Adam, if you introduced me or not, but Yep, no, we can hear you. Keep okay. Going. Yeah, we Hi. can hear you. Hi, guys. Adam, thanks for hosting. Amy, thanks for uh, being interviewed by, by Adam. Um, one thing that's really different this time is the amount of institutional investors involved in real estate nationwide. Are, are you seeing that from your point of view in Dallas? And how sticky is that? Is that going to help hold the floor up higher than people think? That was my question. That's a good question. And that is really tough because this whole iBuyer model is relatively newer. Um, this was not around in the last housing crash. Um, we do have a pretty sizable amount of open door owned properties uh, sitting on the market right now that they're selling. I don't know how much they're actively buying right now. Um, based on people that I've spoken with, the open door offers that are coming in now are so below what they consider market value right now that they're not even entertaining it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think there could be a price floor that maybe where cash investors would be more willing to come in because they aren't as concerned about interest rates and they would say, Hey, this property's cheap enough. I'm going to buy it. Um, but I don't know because we've never really been in a situation before where we've had this many big players trying to buy single family homes. From what I've seen so far, I'm not seeing it scale well. Um, I think homes are very personal. Um, property is personal. Buyers don't like vacant homes. They don't like these generically staged homes. Um, consistently what we see in our market is a home that's well-staged and lived in by a real family would be getting more competitive offers and be more attractive on the market. 
And there's really nothing that the iBuyers can do about that. And another point someone brought up to me that I thought was really great is the iBuyer model almost inadvertently selects for the worst homes because the people that have a home that's kind of a lemon or has mechanical problems or it's going to fail an inspection, those people are going to seek out an iBuyer who's got cash, who's going to say, okay, hey, we're going to lower our offer by X because we found this foundation problem, but we're still going to buy it. Um, so I think iBuyer properties might have a bad stigma attached to them as being those like unsaleable properties. Right. I think the only thing I'd add to what you just said there, Amy, is um, there are some players out there. So Blackstone has already announced that they are, are building a cash war chest. To yes, Invitation Homes. Is that their... I think that might be their company. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think. I, I don't know with certainty either. Um, but so you have some big players who are publicly saying, yeah, we're, 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 we're going to be poised to move, you know, if there are better values ahead. Um, but that being said, and, and Andrew, I don't know when you logged into this space, but we, we talked uh, probably about a half hour ago about some of the risks um, of these institutional buyers as, as being, um, if they get in trouble, you know, more likely to be kind of cut and run uh, holders of property and potentially you know, flooding markets if they're just dumping a bunch of properties at once. Um, TBD, how this script actually plays out. Um, but uh, it'll also vary greatly depending upon, you know, which markets the more solvent guys are focused on. Um, but I, I think you're going to see a lot of variation, I guess. And um, I, I feel personally pretty confident that you're going to see some to a number of markets where the institutional buyers end up being a net um, depressor of prices as they get in trouble. Totally makes sense. Thanks guys. All right. Thanks for the question. Um, Yemen, I think you have been requested like the whole time. So I'm hoping you have a question. <laughs> I'm going to let you in first and we'll see if you still uh, have a question, and if not, we'll move on to Kevin. Adam, thank you. Right. I uh, I heard. I think you, and then the rest was in transition. Did I miss something? Okay, no worries. Okay, nope, just uh, we're, we're letting you speak. So, okay, uh, two questions. You got, you got the floor. Thank you. Two questions. Thank you for hosting, by the way, and thanks. Thank you, Amy, for speaking. Um, two questions. They're related. Sure. How many units do you see switching from short-term rentals to long-term rentals or coming to the market as sale? Um, this, let's say, in the next three to six months, so in, in line with the Airbnb bust thing. Oh, that is a really hard question. Um, so based on the research I've been able to gather is there are currently around 2 million short-term rental properties in the U.S., um, there've been a couple people that have refuted this with lower numbers or different numbers, but yeah. pretty sure Ivy Zellman backed that hers might've even been a little bit higher and I generally trust her. So, um, you've got a little, you glitched. Oh, Amy, you, glitched. you glitched a little there. So if you could just restate the numbers, I'm not sure everybody heard them. Oh, I think around 2 million total are, are what we have on market right now. Um, okay. And that's short how many of those. Are, uh, yes. Um, okay. And sorry, that's sorry the most accurate. 
but but just so you know, right before this space, I went to the Airbnb website, and at the mm-hmm. end of 2021, they had over 2.1 million listings, um, which might not oh, might not all be. So units. maybe my number's low. Yeah, your number might be a little okay. low as a result. Yeah. Okay, Ivy Zellman had 2.5 million, um, so that she might be more accurate then. Um, there's various sources online that have all sort of pitched out different numbers and I'm not honestly sure which source is more accurate than another, but, um, if you've got that data, then that's great. Um, but what percentage of those are going to come back on market? I mean, put it this way, 50% of those at least were purchased in the last two years. So you've got to assume that a significant chunk of those people might start running into either cash flow problems or equity problems if the market continues to correct down. So a good chunk of those people are probably going to be forced to convert those into long-term rentals or sell them. But in terms of a hard number, it's really hard to say. Thank you. And uh, I trust Ivy's work as well. And Amy, I enjoy your tweets as well. Uh, so with 2 million short-term rental units, potentially, half of which uh, potentially could come to market, and then a record number of multi- and single-family units currently under construction and likely coming to market this spring and next, and demand seemingly dead at 7% mortgage rates, how far do mortgage rates have to come down to balance supply and demand nationwide uh, this year, uh, in 2023, let's say, uh, with what we know about supply and demand today? And thank you, that's all. Um, I don't know that mortgage rates have to come down. It's it's either got to be rates or prices or some combination of the two to hit affordability. Um, you've just got buyers looking at that monthly payment. You know, here's my budget. Here's what I can afford. Whatever combo of interest rate and home price can get them to that budget is when they're going to buy. Uh, assuming also, you know, you've got to account for the re- recession fears and just general psychological fear, you know, if a market looks like it's crashing, people might get cold feet, even if they think the home is a good deal. Um, they still might be scared. Like, what if it falls another 10%? I don't want to lose my down payment money. Um, but yeah, I don't necessarily think it's a matter of rates coming down. I think it's a matter of prices coming down. And I think especially with those units under construction by builders, you're going to see the builders more eager to cut prices swiftly because they've got a business to run. And they don't live in the homes, and they've got to move. Yeah, on. they've got a they've got a sunk cost. They they've got to sell it for something. Yeah, sunk cost. They get zero. <laughs> right, they get it. Yeah. Um. So I I, I totally agree with you, um, a- a- Amy, and and you know I've had some recent discussions on on wealthy on um you know about the high interest rates, the high mortgage rates back in the eighties, uh, and uh, yes, they were high, um, but they were actually more affordable because the price to income ratio of the housing stock was much more reasonable than it is today. So it's an exact validation of your point there, which is um, we, we don't so much have a, uh, an interest rate problem, although of course nobody likes interest rates to go up if you're a homeowner or a home buyer. Um, but uh, what we really have is, is a, is a pricing problem. And even, even at the 3% mortgages that we were at earlier this year, um, we still had a massive affordability problem. You know, there, Amy, you write a lot about the plight of the millennial generations and younger generations. I mean, there's just a ton of folks that were getting priced out uh, at those prices, let alone the fact that mortgage rates were the cheapest they'd ever been. Yep. I completely agree with that. 
Okay. All right. Um, guys, I, I promised Amy that I wouldn't keep her uh, all night because she has a, a family that she has to get back to, some some young ones that are depending on her. Um, Amy, we'll take just one or two last questions, if that's okay with you. Kevin has been patiently waiting, so I'm going to bring him in. Okay. All right, Kevin, the floor is yours. Oh, hey, Adam. Hey, Amy. Just want to say both you, hey, both you guys do a great job on Twitter and enjoy reading all your stuff. Thank you. But I, I wanted to make a comment uh, uh, more so than a, a question that a, a lot of people, listeners that might be on this, everyone's always looking to increase their wealth, but uh, factors that people don't include in their calculations frequently are the transaction cost to acquire the asset of the house and then also the transaction cost to sell the asset if it doesn't work out. So there's a lot more risk when you buy a house for $500,000 with a $20,000 acquisition cost. And then if you have to turn around and sell it for $500,000 and it costs you $30,000 to get rid of it, it ends up being a really expensive mistake, so to speak. That's a great point, Kevin. Um, And on top of that, you know, there's just all the costs of home ownership, um, you know, that go along with it, the maintenance, insurance and all that stuff. And Amy was saying earlier that um, a lot of these short term rentals, you know, might convert into long term rentals. And I don't know, you know, Amy, maybe we will we'll see a, uh, finally a relief for renters where, you know, for the past 10 years, rents have just been inexorably going higher and higher and higher uh, for folks. Um, you know, I live in an area where most, most families that grew up in this area have had to move because they've been priced out. Um, maybe your people have brought that here, Adam. Yeah. Well, because they <laughs> had to go somewhere. So they went to where you live. So, um, so maybe that trend, you know, reverses or at least gets a breather where people all of a sudden realize, hey, not only can I get a cheaper house to rent, um, but maybe I was thinking about buying, but but maybe I'm not going to buy right now because I've done the math and the math of renting at these lower rates is actually maybe favorable. So. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, Kevin, thank you for sharing that point. I That is valid. And I think that there is, it is worth looking at your, the opportunity cost of your capital because the dollar is strong right now. And if you've got cash, you know, do you want to deploy that cash, you know, spend $50,000 on a transaction or a down payment or whatever, when you could be putting that money somewhere else and earning a certain yield versus an asset that questionably may go down in the next year. And a lot of people say will go down in the next year. Exactly. And that was more just for people that may be on this uh, audio cast that are interested in possibly getting into the business versus people that already know what they're doing. Just a, a warning. It costs zero money to trade stocks on Ameritrade, where real estate again is expensive to transact when you both buy and sell. Right now, I mean, and there's and much less liquid. Much less yep. liquid. Now there are tax benefits and other things like that. But Kevin, your your points are great, and you sound like a man talking from experience. Do you work in the industry? Yeah, I've been in uh, real estate since 1989. Okay. Well, look, why we have you, wow. we have you as a speaker? <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what, do, what do you think about today's environment from a from a buying standpoint? You, you agree with our point of just look, patience is your your best friend right now, or or do you have a different opinion? 
Oh, I, I agree with that. The only thing that's tough that I'm seeing, I lived in New York State for 57 years and moved down to Florida here uh, a year ago, and it is local in nature. Uh, the trend I see, especially living down here, is a massive migration of people from the northern states where they're unhappy with the weather, the taxes, and the politics. And even though the market is slowed dramatically, I think in a lot of other areas of the country here, it's been very minimal as far as the slowing. The number of transactions aren't there, but the pricing hasn't really come down that much. Mm -hmm. And it's just a great reminder. And we probably should have said this multiple times throughout this space, you know, local mileage always varies in real estate. So a lot of the things that we're talking about are kind of at a general level, but the way they play out in your particular locale are going to be entirely dependent upon the idiosyncratic, uh, you know, unique attributes of, of where you are. Right. And I've just, I'd seen prior bust, uh, you know, back in 08, 09, where people would literally have to come to the closing table with a check for 200,000 to liquidate their house. Mm. And, People just don't think that can happen, and it can happen. All right. Well, folks, that's the voice of experience there. All right. Well, look, we're, <laughs> we're going to end on that so I can keep my promise to Amy. Um, Amy, thank you so much. Folks, if you've enjoyed this, uh, again, follow uh, Amy on Twitter at, uh, at TexasRunnerDFW. Uh, if you don't follow me, please follow me at, at MenloBear. And if you enjoy sort of long form macro interviews and discussions like this, like I said, I do them uh, five to six times a week on my YouTube channel at Wealthion. That's uh, Wealth I-O-N. Feel free to go follow that for free as well. Um, Amy, it's been a pleasure. I, I really hope we get to do this again at some point soon. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for having me. This is my first space. So uh, it was fun to, fun to try it out. And you were a great person to do it with. Awesome host. So I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks so much. Everybody else, thanks for listening. Give a high five upon leaving and um, have yourself a great Sunday night. And we hope to see you on Twitter Spaces again sometime soon. I hope you enjoyed this Twitter space with Amy and me. I do these Twitter interviews with increasing frequency. So if you'd like to be kept in the loop when my next one is going to happen, follow me on Twitter at MenloBear. I also share a steady stream of insights, headlines, and charts that catch my eye throughout the day on that platform. It's a great way to stay connected with me as you wait for the next YouTube video to come out. And as always, if you enjoyed this interview about the Airbnb bust and would like to see coverage of similar topics on this channel in the future, please do me a favor and support us by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Thanks so much for doing that, and thanks for watching.